Hello and welcome to Girls That Invest, the platform that empowers millennials through financial literacy. You're joined today by your hosts, Sim and Sonia, two millennial investors who are extremely passionate about all things investing and personal finance. Hey, Sim. Hey, Sonia. So tell me about your life. Give me updates. It's been a hot minute. I'm really happy because I have Wi-Fi from today. My good friend here has been surviving in her new house for a few weeks now without Wi-Fi. So tell us about your brave story. I don't know where to begin. Like, you know, when you like move into a new place and you kind of expect it's going to take a couple of days and you kind of up your phone plan to get some more data. And then I had like the fiber people come and they were like, yeah, this is going to take a few months. And I was like, no. You're like, no, that can't happen with tears rolling down your cheeks. Like, where are my human rights? And then, <laughs> I'm kidding. I, I take it back. And then I was like, okay, well, if I'm not going to get fiber for a couple of months, can I at least get like normal broadband? Like, what do you call it these days? And they're like, yeah, we can set that up. So that came today. But yeah, anyway, how have you been? How is work? I have been so good. No more lockdowns. I haven't got another lockdown to report, so that's great. I feel like I have to say that now. Like every episode, we're not in lockdown, but also exciting. Got a promotion, so that's fun and fresh. That is definitely something to celebrate. Did you do anything for it? I just ate a lot. Uh, My mum just fed me. My parents are so cute. They were so excited. And I feel like because I was seeing them so hype, it got me like that much more hype. So I'm so excited just to work every day and just feel so much more purposeful. Absolutely. All right. So we are talking about something that we actually haven't spoken about before. So I am excited to get into it. And that is diving into investing scams and what to look out for. Now, I know when we talk about investing scams, we kind of think, you know, that's not something that's going to happen to me. Like if someone calls me up and they're like, hi, I'm like a prince from like really unknown country and I need a thousand dollars, like you're not going to send it to them. However, investing scams in the world of stock markets and the world of just investing in general, they can be a little bit more tricky and it's good to know what to look out for because you don't if you don't know what they are then of course it's a lot harder to see them coming it's also worth noting that in the last couple of years the SEC has actually reported an increase in scamming activity especially during these uncertain times because there's a lot of changes you know there might be a lot more false information and so now is a great time than ever to really knuckle down on these concepts and just have them in the bag so that we're informed, we're educated, and we're just ready to, you know, sift through the BS. We thought we would break it down by keeping it simple, giving you guys the four main types of investing scams to look out for, and then an example of each to kind of see how they play out. And then hopefully you leave this episode knowing, you know, what has happened in the past, what sort of red flags are there, and just get a feel for, yeah, what you might want to be more wary of. Sweet. Do you want to kick it off with the first one? Yeah, sure. So number one is shares and option scams. So to put this simply, it's basically 
when someone has offered to but has no intention of actually buying shares or options on your behalf or they're buying into companies that aren't actually worth how much they're telling you to pay. So an example of this, which was quite big in 2001, was Enron, which was at the time the seventh largest company in the US. Not like the seventh largest food company or seventh largest car company. It was the seventh largest company overall. And they actually got convicted of doing this. They were basically an energy trading company. And in simple words, they were fooling investors and analysts into thinking that the company was a lot more stable than it actually was. What they were doing is what we call cooking the books, which is a jargon term, but it basically means that they're showing that their company was making a lot more profit than it actually was. So they would use a lot of shell companies to kind of move their money around in a way to show that they had less debt on their name and then also use the shell companies to show that they were making a lot more money. And so low debt, lots of revenue, it would make people want to invest in this company more because it was like, damn, you know, their fundamentals are really good. Enron is killing it. When it was found out, the share price that day dropped from $90 per share to less than 30 cents, which is crazy. And what had happened, which was also really interesting, is Arthur Anderson was the fifth largest accounting firm in the world. And because they didn't pick up that Enron was making all of these like little tweaks and little sort of, you know, cover-ups, they went down as well because, you know, they kind of got mucked up in it. So that was the loss of two huge companies. And it caused the term cook the books to kind of come back into light. And so it's an example of doing your due diligence, but also at the same time, me and Sonia have kind of talked about this before. If you don't understand how a company's making money, that's kind of a red flag. Like in this case, you don't actually know how to tell if a company's lying on their sheets, like that's not something that most of us can pick up. But if you're like, damn, this company's super profitable, but I don't really get how, sometimes that's a red flag and it's something to possibly do more research into or walk away from. I'm glad that like not only are the people that are conducting the fraud usually get torn apart, but also the people that didn't catch it. Cause that accounting firm, like, like that is a big cock up, right? like missing that they aren't legit because their entire job is to audit these companies. Is that right? Absolutely, for sure. And then they also apparently, not apparently they did, they also shredded thousands of documents once they found out what Enron was doing. So it was almost like, oh, we missed it. Let's fix this by destroying all the evidence. So I think that kind of sealed the deal more. You know, like people make mistakes, but don't shred the evidence. Yeah, that makes you look more sus. Like I reckon if they're like, sorry guys, we missed this, we're coming to you that we made this mistake rather than exploding in their faces, that would have looked differently. But shredding documents because you missed ma- uh, made a mistake, like that just makes you look more sus. It's not cute. All right, so yeah, did you want to run us through Ponzi schemes? So a Ponzi scheme Just a little bit of background in terms of why it's called a Ponzi scheme. Back in the 1920s, so we weren't around 
at this time, guys, no matter how old I think I'm getting. It was named after a guy called Charles Ponzi, who like basically convinced thousands, not hundreds, thousands of investors back in the 1920s to invest in particular companies. And he promised a 50% return in three months. So in 90 days on profits made from international reply coupons at the time. And eventually the scheme crumbled and he was unable to pay off later investors and he received a prison sentence and he tried to jump bail and all this really dramatic stuff. But essentially the takeaways are that the Ponzi scheme, they're fraudulent investments, never legitimate ones. And they promise above average returns, but they always like fail in the long run. And that is a direct quote from thebalance.com. Does that make sense so far? That really does. I feel like the word Ponzi scheme or the word just like a Ponzi scam is one that a lot of people hear of, but it's always hard to actually know what that means. Yeah. There's a few key characteristics of a Ponzi scheme. So as I mentioned, one would be they kind of assure you that you'll have real, real high returns and almost no risk with these investments, which is sus to begin with because all investments run a little bit of risk, right? And the investments that they propose, they're not actually registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission, which some often refers to as SEC. That's what we mean. That's also a big red flag. There's no legal paperwork available for the investor to examine. So we talk a really good game about doing your research and doing your due diligence. But when Ponzi schemes or when people who are trying to outsmart investors, when you try to do your research, you'll find nothing with these schemes because there's nothing. There's nothing for you to examine or look into. And also, it's extremely hard to get your money back. There's another common characteristic. In terms of Quite possibly one of the most popular examples would be a guy called Bernie Madoff. He operated the longest running Ponzi scheme to date, which is kind of a big deal because in a long time since investing's been a thing, to put it lightly. So for around 20 years, um, essentially, investors poured in over 17 billion into like this investment firm and I'm putting quote marks under investment firm because it was fake that was fake news and the 2008 financial crisis brought his fraud into light when people tried to withdraw money so they're trying to withdraw like billions of dollars and because the entire thing was a scam Bernie was unable to reimburse them And then in 2009, he was given a 150-year prison sentence, but he passed away in 2021. So he did pass away in prison. But yeah, that was probably one of the most notable schemes. And before, like, I guess his fraud was brought to light, he was like chairman of NASDAQ as well. And he had like this really great reputation. I know. He had like this real great reputation about what kind of man he was and um, turns out he was a fluke. It's almost worse that it happened during the GFC because that's a time where 
people already so vulnerable. They were already pulling out all the money that they could to pay off their debt and like feed their family. And like to find out then that the money that you had in investments were just not actually there, like heartbreaking. The real though, like it's kind of horrendous how many people that have made it big have done so by going about really shady business and like I guess that's kind of a real chill way to put it but it is something that I think about that all these people made so much money just by essentially taking advantage of gullible people at desperate times. That kind of leads me on to the third type of fraud which is not a particular method of fraud but rather the way that they attract people and that is affinity fraud. It basically means using scam tactics or investment fraud on people who you would otherwise trust or who would trust you. So basically it's using scam techniques on people from like religious groups or your social or cultural groups. So you're basically abusing the trust of people within these groups to steal money and it can be not just religious it can also be the elderly it can also be people you know from your like a particular college and you're pretending to be from there and you're you know promoting or trying to um, fundraise money for school trips it it can be as small as that but it can also be as large as an example that we found which was the church funding project so it was basically a type of pyramid scheme and to a point almost a ponzi scheme as well and so in the u.s there was this man and what he did is he created a scam called the church funding project and he went to particularly african-american churches and he went nationwide he went to over a thousand churches and he would tell these people to invest into his fund into his project and that the project was going to you know help people throughout the country it was going to go help build more infrastructure and that they would receive money from their investments afterwards. And it, what ended up happening is he raised $3 million from 1,000 churches and it was all a complete scam. And the reason he got away with it was because he built that trust. He became a part of the community in, in these people's eyes. And not to say that religious people or people of certain groups are less smart than other people because that's definitely not true but we do put our guard down when we are talking to someone that we believe is one of us so to speak and so things to look out for I think Sonia's example of what to look out for in a Ponzi scheme it really just sums up the same thing here so how legitimate are they can you see their documentation if they start you know beating around the bush with providing information that you need and it kind of seems too good to be true or they're saying no risk or minimal risk, those are all really big signs or a guaranteed return. That's another really big one. But just remembering that we are human and we are susceptible, all of us, to things that we might not look through the same lens with when we feel like it's someone that's in our corner. Yeah, 100%, because they've taken the time to build trust. I think with like the way people go about affinity fraud, would you say that they don't actually mind how long it takes, so long as 
because like they know to manipulate you into trusting them and then once they've got that trust essentially people would do anything for them right I mean absolutely and trust is such a huge emotion and it's something that we really don't realize how powerful it can be which is horrific because then the fact that people would even take advantage of that is just it blows my mind that it is something to take into consideration and I will be the first to say like For business owners, every transaction is more than just a swipe of the card. It's the culmination of your hard work, dedication and commitment to your customers. That's why I'm excited to share with you a game-changing solution that's simplifying the way businesses like yours accept payments. Introducing Tap to Pay on iPhone, powered by Stripe. Contactless payments has never been easier. You can seamlessly accept contactless payments directly from your iPhone and the best part, there's no additional hardware required. Think about it, from local pop-ups to global retailers, tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe cater to businesses of all sizes, empowering them to accept payments right from their iPhones. It's a game changer for businesses looking to scale quickly and stay flexible with quick setup that takes minutes, not days. So how can tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe benefit your business? It's simple, increased revenue, expanded reach and enhanced customer experience. It's a win, win, win. To learn more about how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can transform your business, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone today. If you market something to me in like millennial pink and you have like a beautiful, beautiful young woman up front who talks like me, like, hey girl, like, do you want to like sign up to this new gym membership? I'd be like, okay, I'll look into it. Like, I'll have a second. I don't care if I don't go to the gym. I don't care if this will be a weekly donation. You have a cute logo, you know? I am not against it. Like, hear me out. So, (laughs) be it. So, affinity frauds. Now, there's one more, and there are boiler rooms. So, do you mind running us through that real quick? Absolutely. So, boiler rooms are just a group of terrible people. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) So... Yeah, I'm sorry. So boiler room schemes, primarily, they're really large scale operations and the entire motive is to basically scheme as many people as you can to certain investments by using real high pressure sales tactics. So usually the way that people go about this if they're in a boiler room is it's usually a call center where they outbound a whole list of potential investors. And if you are working at a boiler room or if you are working in a scheme, they usually refer to these lists as sucker lists, hence why I see a group of terrible people. Totally kidding. I'm not kidding. But essentially in terms of high pressure sales tactics, the only information they're giving you is positive information about the stock they're trying to sell. And they really try to discourage people that they're calling from doing any outside research. So major red flag. In terms of examples, I mean... I know we talk about it all the time and maybe there's only like three episodes where we don't mention this movie, but um, The Wolf of Wall Street. Someone needs to stop us. Okay, listen. Look, I sound like one of those, what are they called? Finance bros. Oh, yeah. Gosh, I'm so sorry. Just call me for what I am, Ralph. 
of finance, bro, mentioning Wolf of Wall Street every second episode. You know what? I'm over trying to justify why I keep bringing this movie up. It works, okay? It's a legitimate example every single time we talk about it. But um, Wolf of Wall Street is a great example of a boiler scheme. If you imagine that scene where the camera kind of pans to like all these guys in suits and they're all on phones and they're like really hyping the people up on the phone. That's exactly what a boiler room situation is. And I'd imagine like working in those companies would actually be kind of exciting because like they constantly have to be hype and maintain like a certain amount of energy to sell all these things. And once they reach certain goals and numbers, there'd be celebrations and speeches, you know? I think what you enjoy is the reward aspect of it as opposed to like the lying and committing investing fraud aspect. Am I correct? Absolutely terrible. Yes. And I don't know why I just went down that route. But essentially, like with the Ponzi schemes, I'm just going to give you a few feelers to look out for and to maybe kind of question if it happens to you. One is receiving an outbound call and they're just pressuring you to buy a stock. It's a red flag. I don't know if you need me to say it, Um, but it is a massive red flag. We're in 2021. I don't know who's outbounding people to buy stock nowadays, but maybe just Google it. If you're in New Zealand, maybe just check if they have an 0800 number, you know, they'll be like, I'll call you back, sweetie. Two, there's pressure to buy quickly. So they haven't given you any um, grace to kind of thinking about this investment and to doing your research you're almost made to buy on the spot or in like a 24-hour window because they're like this is the best deal you need to get it now you'll never get it or never get down here or down to this price after today and usually they're unsolicited offers or they're investments that you don't really ask for especially if you don't know the caller or who's calling or the company that they're calling from. And again, kind of similar to the Ponzi scheme, they promise high returns with little to no risk because a part of their scripting or a part of them trying to convince you is only to speak about the positive information. So that's something to be wary of as well. With All of that being said, I know we've gone through four really popular types of investing scams. Sim, I did want to ask you, because who do we trust? Like, we're always like, do your research, do that, but then question everything you're reading. Can it kind of be overwhelming for you, for people? Mm -hmm. I think that's such a good point. And a lot of the information that I find, like if I come across something and I'm like, oh, like that kind of seems a little bit too good to be true. A lot of these sort of things I see more as um, ads, like Facebook ads or ads on the internet as opposed to like emails or, or calls. I usually go to the website and sometimes you can just tell when something's a little bit off, but if you're not sure, I always like to copy and paste and put them into Google and see what other people on forms are saying. So like, hey, like, have you invested with like such and such investment fund before? And someone might be like, yeah, I was kind of burnt by them. Or other people be like, yeah, no, like they're for real. Sometimes you just can't tell with your own research. And in those cases, I highly recommend actually contacting your government agency. Now, I know we have a lot of listeners from around the world 
So every government agency will be different. In America, of course, you've got the SEC. New Zealand, you've got FMA. But they are here to help and they're not going to be bothered by you shouting them a quick email and being like, hey, like, this is something I've come across. Is this actually legit or, you know, is it something I should be more mindful of? And they'll be able to give you some pointers. And if anything, you'll be helping them out by you know, providing them something that might be a little bit dodgy that they didn't really know about. So sometimes it's okay to be like, I just don't know, and I'll ask a professional for help. With government agencies, especially with like the FMA, their entire focus, especially with FSLA, like the latest financial act that just passed or became effective in March this year in New Zealand, it's for the consumer. Like they're just trying to protect the consumer and making sure that in terms of insurance and financial products and financial advisors, they're not trying to scam people, essentially. So if you are ever like cautious of calls that you're getting or companies that you've never heard of, as Sim said, I reckon they'd really appreciate people reaching out to them because it makes their job easier instead of trying to look for those companies, you know? Absolutely. If you had to say your like one takeaway or one biggest piece of advice that you would look out for if you ever came across something that was you know slightly a little bit furry what would it be I think trust your gut because I think people's gut instinct leads them mostly to the right place like you know when you get a call when you get that feeling that something isn't right like trust that the common theme that I found amongst all these scams it's it's usually out of desperation people agree to do these schemes which is really sad and I guess that's why people make fun of people that fall for these schemes but you have to think about like maybe the position that they're in maybe they've lost their job maybe it was during a time of like crisis so yeah I think trust your gut because I don't think people give themselves enough credit I completely agree. Like, I know trusting your gut can sometimes come across a little bit like wishy-washy, but 100% a huge believer in it. Like, if something feels too good to be true, more often than not, it is. And there's something about it that just gives you a funny feeling. Mm. Trust it 100%. I think if I had to think of the one thing that I would really recommend that people take away is as soon as someone sees guaranteed returns, like, biggest red flag in my eyes because nothing in investing is guaranteed even when we say you know the S&P 500 it you know on annual returns around seven percent a year that's just based on previous history but that there is no guarantee that that is going to give you that next year or the year after let alone some investment fund by some company that you've kind of heard of if someone's like guaranteed this is how much you're going to get with minimal risk, like, oh my goodness, look into it by all means, but high returns entail high risk. It is not possible to do well without risking a lot at the same time. Yeah, I guess to really sum up, we kind of went through the four kinds of scams, main scams that are out there. So the shares or options scams, Ponzi scams, affinity fraud, boiler room scams and I guess the bottom line is really just 
doing your research thoroughly. If something feels a little bit off, look into it. Know who's talking to you. Know what company they're from. Know how it's going to make money. And if at any point things just don't line up, it's easy to say when you're not in desperate time, but just walk away or contact professional help. But yeah, I, I guess that that's a wrap i am just going to finish off with a wee disclaimer girls that invest does not provide personalized investing advice for your individual needs we are not financial advisors the advice from girls that invest exists for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment or financial decision advice from girls that invest is general in nature and does not consider individual circumstances Always do your research and please use your due diligence. Alrighty, until next time, Sim.